Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, Ignite Seattle is a volunteer-powered event that started back in 2006. The concept is simple, enlighten us, but make it quick. Puget Sounders of all stripes go on stage to share something that inspires them for five minutes. This time around, the talks ranged from robots and the impact of social proximity to burial planning and making Seattle your own. There really is kind of something for everyone. If you've never been to an Ignite event, listen in. It may inspire you to get up on stage next time. This event took place on October 19th at the Egyptian Theater. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, MC Scott Birkin launches the program. Our first talk, are our speakers ready up in the front row? All ready to go? Cool. Our first talk, The Unusual History of Volunteering. Please welcome Amy Faulkner to the stage. Volunteering has a branding problem. That's right, as much as we may not want to admit it, a large portion of our population believes that volunteering is something you do when you're trying to get out of a speeding ticket and not something that's fun, social, and gives back to our community. I wanted to understand why something that could do so much good had such a bad reputation, so like any perfectly normal human being, I dove headfirst into the history of volunteering. The first surprising thing I learned is that volunteering started in America with a much different meaning. Colonial Americans maintained roads and built community buildings. This was essentially the first way of paying taxes in America, and if you failed to volunteer, you could be fined. <laughs> ben Franklin may be best known as one of the founding fathers of our country, but he also started the Leather Apron Club in 1721. This was a group of inspiring artisans who hoped to improve themselves while they improved the community. This was one of the first voluntary organizations in the United States, and soon we had all kinds of associations like the eagles, elks, lions, and other inspiring animals. These groups <laughs> brought people together and gave them a sense of belonging in their community. At this point in history, we had two kinds of volunteering, the forced kind and the fun kind. In 1861, Abraham Lincoln decided to change all of that, and he lovingly gave us the Internal Revenue Service, <laughs> confirming that there are two things in life that are inevitable, both death and taxes. <laughs> in 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson introduced a set of domestic programs dubbed Great Society, with the goal of eliminating poverty and racial injustice. These programs funded things like Medicare, public broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. This influx of funding afforded nonprofits the ability to replace volunteers with hired staff, and without the opportunity to volunteer, television started filling our time, and we soon saw a widespread decline in all forms of civic engagement. This included things like voting, attending public meetings, even things like bowling leagues. This left our nation of joiners without opportunities to join or the de desire to do so. Then, in the 80s, Reagan cut a total of $33 billion in federal aid, and funding for all of these great programs was nearly gone. So why is this important? 
Sure, we've had a decline in volunteerism in community since the creation of television, but we're still okay. We still get shit done. In fact, look at all of the technological advances we've had since that time. We can order groceries by talking to a computer. We have self-driving cars. We are living our best Jetsons lives. However, with all of this technology, we no longer have to talk to anyone. This is a weird concept when you think about it because we are a nation obsessed with social media and being connected all of the time. We are both working to make relationships stronger by eliminating interaction and obsessively looking for ways to make connections through social media. Despite all of this technology, we're still all humans and humans by nature operate in their day-to-day -day lives through bonding. We form bonds with people, places, and things that make us who we are and form our belief systems. Yet technology is disrupting our ability to make these bonds, and we know that social isolation can exacerbate a person's feelings of low self-worth, shame, loneliness, depression, and other mental health concerns. When we do not have opportunities to make and maintain positive bonds in our lives, our lives become susceptible to negative bonds, which can trigger mental health issues. And mental health is the root cause of many of the problems we face today. So here's what I ask of you. Let's live less isolated. We can still love all of this great technology, but together, let's make a movement to bring back volunteer organizations and beliefs that support that giving back is fun and not punishment. I am the founder of the nonprofit organization, The World is Fun. We are on a mission to get you involved in giving back to the Seattle community, and through that process, we hope to enrich your life. Now, all we need is you. Ironically, you can find us on social media, <laughs> at The World is Fun. Thank you. Good stuff. As I mentioned before, we're a volunteer event. So hey, we let off with a talk about why volunteering is kind of cool and you should do it more. So next up, a timely talk, given you're all sitting next to people, some of whom you know and some of whom you don't. So the next talk, the title is called The Proximity Principle. Please welcome Rupi Suresh Kumar to the stage. Think about a close friend. Someone you can count on in good times or bad. And now think about how you met that person. Maybe it was back at the playground or recently here at work. You see, four years ago when I made my 3,000 mile from my hometown in Philadelphia to here in Seattle, I felt how friendships changed. Some faded away. I have a lot of new friendships here in Seattle. And then a few months ago, when I made my big one-mile move from Capitol Hill to Belltown, it was a much smaller extent, but I also felt how things changed. I'm seeing different people regularly, I'm getting dinner with different people, and this really intrigued me, so I did what I do best, and I Googled it. Turns out there's several different contributors to how we make and maintain friendships, and physical proximity is actually a really big one. Maybe it contributed to the friendship that you were just thinking about. Proximity is so relevant in how we make friends that there's actually something called the proximity principle, which is our tendency to make friends with those who are close to us. This principle came about in the 1950s when three psychologists studied the MIT freshman dorms. 
After a year, they interviewed students and found that 65% of students mentioned that their close friends lived uh, within the same dorm, despite there being other dorms nearby. 41% of students talked about being very close friends with their next-door neighbors. And the, um, the results of the study have since been replicated in many different environments, like neighborhoods and classrooms, all showing the effect of proximity on our friendships. This study was particularly interesting to me because here's a picture of my two best friends from college who I'm still so close to to this day. Sam was my next-door neighbor in my freshman hall, and Zeke lived three doors down from me. What's interesting about the proximity principle is that even in today's digital age, where we have the internet and the ability to co connect with, honestly, whoever we'd like, just think about who you're contacting using social media. It turns out the majority of social media interactions still occur between people who are in close physical proximity. Maybe that's why a famous actor once said, contrary to general belief, I do not believe that friends are necessarily the people you like best. They are merely the people who get there first. But why does this happen? And I think it's a lot related maybe to the mere exposure effect. This is another psychological phenomenon, and it's the idea that the more that we are exposed to something, or in, case, in this case, someone, the more we're going to like them. There is an exception that if you dislike someone, continuous exposure is only going to make you dislike them more. Uh, there's a great talk on how to cope with that a little bit later. But generally, we like familiarity. We like those continuous interactions with people. Like, think about the characters and friends. They're next door neighbors. They're always meeting up at Central Perk Cafe. And they're getting that chance to be up to date on each other's daily lives and form those close friendship bonds. There's a part of the proximity principle that I just think is maybe convenience. We're all very busy, we're all a little bit lazy, and I think that maybe at the end of a long day, it's sometimes just convenient to grab a drink with whoever's down the hall or across the street from us. For a while, I lived in a, an apartment building here in Capitol Hill, which I would have called like an adult dorm. It was myself and like 12 friends all living in the same building, and that totally affected who I was getting to know and spending my time with during that time. And so why does this matter? Well, I think that sometimes when we be un better understand our natural tendencies, we can be more um, intentional about the actions that we take. So a few examples. Maybe if I'm a manager and I care a lot about the team dynamics on my team, maybe I'll embrace an open workspace because the proximity principle tells me that mere exposure is going to create friendships among my team. And I might even care about who sits next to who because even that can affect who becomes friends with who. Or maybe if I'm moving to a new city or a new neighborhood, I'm being really intentional about thinking where I'm going to go and if I want to be close to the people that I care about. And you might have heard the saying that we are the average of our five closest friends. Well, if that's true, and if our friendships are so affected by the environments that we're in, let's all make efforts to spend time in places where we're going to be with the people we want, who we want to be or who we want to be friends with. So take a moment, meet your neighbor tonight. My name is Rupi Suresh Kumar, and if you're equally curious as me and just want to talk about why people do what they do, definitely contact me. Thank you. So an interesting test for you. At halftime, there'll be a break. You may decide at halftime you really don't want to be friends with the people near you, and you'll go to the balcony and find like a new seat. So pay attention to that. You're getting feedback 
on how difficult a person you might be, which is a talk you'll hear in the second half. Meanwhile, let's take people out of the equation for a moment and talk about one of our great fears, which is robots. So our next talk, robots are not coming for your job. Patrick Rowland, please welcome him to the stage. Hey everyone, uh, so I work in retail, uh, e-commerce specifically, and every day I see articles about how robots are gonna take over our jobs and it's not looking good. There's uh, a story recently, Walmart replaced 4,000 workers with robots, uh, McDonald's replaced 2,500 workers, cashiers with kiosks, a little like airport check-in things, uh, and cafeterias have replaced entire staffs with self-service vending machines. So it, it doesn't look good when you see those. Uh, academic studies say the same thing, that 47% of our jobs are at risk, that half of us could lose our jobs. But I think there's an assumption, and I think that assumption, especially when it comes to academic studies, is that, <laughs> is that, if there, uh, is that it, just because something could, can be automated, it will. But I don't think that this is the reality. I don't think that robots are gonna kill us today. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, that was out of order, my bad. <laughs> so, I'm gonna keep going, thank you. <laughs> so I think there's a couple reasons for this, and I'd like to look at some of the numbers. So this is US productivity. It's all the things we make and serve divided by all the hours we work. And we should see that number going up, but if you notice, it's going down, and we might actually hit negative productivity this coming year. Uh, unemployment, <laughs> woo. Uh, unemployment rates uh, is going down, it's below 5%, so we're not losing jobs. Uh, job tenure is going up, that means that we are staying longer and longer at our jobs. So it actually seems like we are not being affected by this. So, here's the secret sauce, I'm gonna tell you why automation isn't going to take your jobs. Number one, is that we're just not spending enough money on automation. Uh, so that bar on the left is $11.3 billion, and that's what we invest in robotics here in the US. The number on the right is $15 billion on sex toys, and I, they're fun, but I might get five minutes of use. Like, we should invest in things that last longer. So we're just not spending enough money on it. Uh, number two is there will always be new and better jobs. And you've probably heard this before, but I'm going to give you an example, a case study. So in the 1970s, there, are, there was a job category called accountants, uh, accounting clerks and bookkeepers. And they were human Excel spreadsheets. So before we had Excel, uh, people did this by hand. It was the size of a boardroom table. It would take all day to figure out every single field by hand. In 1979, VisiCalc was released for the Apple II computer. Uh, it was very basic. Uh, actually, it was so old that like the sound slowed it down, like when it played a sound when a field changed. Uh, but what took days now took seconds. So supply and demand should clearly tell us that something that uh, used to be really take a long time now takes very little. They should go out of business. But actually. Uh, we gained jobs over a 10-year period. So from 1980 to uh, 1990, we got more accountants. And I think the reason for this is that 
people started asking more questions. Instead of 25 questions a year, we made more, bigger, better, ac more accurate spreadsheets, and people started valuing this thing more. So it grew this industry, even though it took something that used to take all day down to just a couple seconds. So third point, there is a talent barrier. So there's lots of cool things that automation can do if there's enough smart people in the world. And I think a really good example of this is a game called Go. Uh, so you may have heard that, uh, or everyone, I think everyone here knows that computers beat uh, the world champion of chess. We recently beat the world champion of Go. Now this is a little bit more complicated than chess. There's more moves and positions and strategies. So it took a little bit longer. What you probably don't know is that this was done by an entire company called DeepMind, later acquired by Google. And it was built with three separate learning algorithms and a main program to do all of this. So it took a lot of effort and there's just, not enough, uh, and it took years for them to do this. So it's not enough, uh, there's not enough talent in the world to uh, uh, automate everything. So we are losing jobs, I wanna say this, and this is uh, for the industrial sector. So an automation is taking some of them, and I think this is why we're so scared, but trade is the real culprit here. My point here isn't that automation is irrelevant. It is a factor, it was on that last slide, but it will take decades, or maybe centuries for us to be automated out of our jobs. Until then, we just have to keep working. Thank you. Good job. Okay, so now you can feel a little better about your long life. You'll probably have employment for at least a while. Now we have to think about things that are very important but that we avoid because we're a little bit afraid of them and maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we should think more carefully about them. And I'm talking, of course, about death. So the next talk is titled Death 2.0. Please welcome Jeremy Draught to the stage. Thank you all. Thank you. God, this is such an exciting night. We're having a fabulous time. I'm very reassured. Thank you, Patrick. But because of that, I'm sorry to bring you all down. Some of you who are on first dates, hopefully you'll have a second. But we're all gonna die. I know, I know. It's like I'm the anti-Oprah. You're gonna die, and you're gonna die, and you're gonna die. I didn't set out to be a giga death. But I read somewhere that dying's the fourth most expensive thing that you'll do. It got me thinking. Why do we either bury these nutrients in a box or burn them up in a fire? There's gotta be a better way. Now, some of you are saying, hey, that's okay, I'm going to be cremated. But that has problems as well. Every year, the U.S. burns enough fuel to drive halfway to the sun. And something else that people rarely ever think about. But every cremation creates a 750-pound carbon footprint. I don't want the last thing that I do to be, <laughs> to be a smudge on the earth. There's got to be a better way. Now, of course, cremation is better than the traditional burial, which buries tons of steel, hardwoods, bronze, dangerous chemicals. And it's very expensive. Now, though we walk through the valley of death, let's look at some alternative paths that might be better for you. <laughs> first of all, just a few blocks away is the first funeral home cooperative, People's Memorial Association, oldest and largest. They can help you plan your funerals so they're not stressed. They can help you lead it to greener selections so you don't have to use embalming fluid or concrete liners. Now, of course, cremation is cheaper too, but remember, there's some problems with that. So let's look at some more eco-friendly forms of cremation. 
something that's more carbon neutral. First of all, one of my favorites, we have rhizomation. Rhizomation, however, is putting you in a uh, pressure vessel with hot water and lye until you're boiled down to your component products, to a compostable liquid. Carbon free, but a little icky even for me. Of course, you can also compost yourself. There's the Human Death Project being started right here. Uh, Katrina Spade wants to build a multi-story tower where after you pass away, you're put in there with wood chips and someone's put on top of you and more wood chips and so on and so on until you work your way all the way down to the bottom. My problem with cremation, spreading ashes, rhizomation, urban death project, doesn't really leave a place for memorialization. You're kind of lost in the sauce. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you don't know where your father is and your, your, father, your father begins. I want something a little more rooted. I want something that's not only sustainable, but restorative. That's why my friends and I are going to kick it old school. We found 30 acres out by Port Townsend that was recently clear-cut, and we're going to regrow that old-growth forest over our dead bodies. <laughs> we're making a cemetery where you're buried without chemicals in a biodegradable casket, and a tree is planted over you. I myself am going to be wrapped in a mycelium shroud, cloth soaked in mushroom spores to help break me down, and help the forest floor. I want something that I, my wife can go to after I pass away and sit under. I think that forests are more healing than cemeteries. Trees are better than tombstones. Stones are silent. Trees whisper in the wind. I want, to, and also this land will be put into conservatorship so after the tree has sucked the marrow from my bones, I will be its guardian for the rest of eternity. I'll be able to shade my wife and hopefully Maybe the person she marries. Because luckily, <laughs> when I'm gone, luckily every tree creates most oxygen for two people. So they'll both be covered. They can breathe easier, literally. So my friends, we have options. We can choose other ways. You can either, you can plan your own funeral. You know, undertake your own undertaking. Think outside of the pine box. <laughs> Think outside the pine box and use a mushroom shroud. Or you can join me and my friends and join us in supporting tree incarnation. <laughs> Whatever you choose, whichever path you choose, I support that. Please just make it more gentle, more meaningful, more memorable. Come join us at treeyourself.org. We're going to be crowdfunding soon, and we would love your support. We would love you to spread the word. If you could all tell 10 friends to tell 10 friends, I'm sure we'd be sold out in no time. Thank you so much. Okay. Hello, people in the balcony. How are you doing? Fantastic. We at Ignite are very fond of the Muppets, and Waldorf and Statler hung out in the balcony. Some of you got that joke good. I'm not too old. Makes me feel good. So what we try to do, as I mentioned in the opening, we want this to be a democratic event that people can submit anything. And us organizers, although we get to pick the talks, we know we have to reject two-thirds of the talks that get submitted, however good they are. So we wanted to try an experiment tonight. We're fond of experiments. Some work and some don't. Are you guys willing to play along an experiment with me tonight? Okay. So what we're going to do, uh, we've chosen um, a few talks that didn't quite make the cut. They were close for this event. 
And what I am going to do, with the help of a lucky member of the balcony attendees, is I am going to lead you as the audience in voting for one of these talks to be in Ignite 35. You get to pick, so you can't complain us organizers quite as much for the next event. Sound good? Okay. So, um, let's see. Let me look around here. Uh, who did I move to a seat so it would look like they were randomly chosen? But Oh, it was you, wasn't it? Yes, it was you, sir. And what is your name? Jeff. Jeff. Have we met before? Lie, lie. No, never. Oh, good, okay. So please stand up, Jeff. So uh, Larry, our slide rang. A round of applause for Larry, please. He's actually running the event up front. Okay. So here's what we're going to do, okay? So take a look at the four options you see there. Read them to yourselves. Actually, you know what, we're, gonna, don't, we're not going to vote yet. Are you comfortable reading? Can you, is your eyesight, can you, I can barely read them, good? Okay, so can you read through all four of them? No one's going to vote yet, we're just going to read through them all. Just read through A. Free accommodations thanks to neurotic dogs. Keep going. Yep, keep going. B, how one person can make you less racist. C, what I learned visiting every park in Seattle. D, what healthy families teach us about the future of democracy. Very good. Good job, Jeff. Thank you very much. Okay, so now, now without further explanation, again, us as organizers, we only learned a little bit about what this mission is going to be. So I'm going to go through all the choices again, and you will vote just by round of applause. Now, please, don't cheat. Democracy works with one vote, one person. So don't applaud for everyone. Don't applaud extra for your friend's talk, but applaud for all the others. Pick one and applaud and cheer out, and we will do open source community crowdsource voting, okay? So let's do A, free accommodations thanks to neurotic dogs. How many want to vote for that? Okay. Option B, how one person can make you less racist. Okay. Option C, what I learned visiting every park in Seattle. Option D, what healthy families teach us about the future of democracy. Okay, so as an experiment, there's a bonus experiment. I think we need to run off between B and C. Run off vote, balcony. Run off vote, we need it. Take up the time, okay. Run off vote, B, how one person can make you less racist. Okay, I've heard you, I've heard you. Option C, what I learned visiting every single park in Seattle. Okay, I think that what I have decided, and the organizers may hate me, is that we need to take both of those talks. All right, cool. So, thank you for participating in this experiment. Now back to the regular operating procedure here. Our next talk, different point of view of how to think about things. If you want to change the world or change yourself, you should host a pageant. Please welcome Abari Charles to the stage. If you want to create change, host a pageant. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Abari Charles, and I have the honor of representing my home country, the Republic of South Sudan, at the Miss Africa Washington State pageant. 
Now, when most people think about pageantry, some of the few things that come up is spoiled brats, glitz and glamour, and for some, it's Honey Boo Boo, a toddler star from Toddlers and Tierras. However, most of us don't have families like Honey Boo Boo. We're not all spoiled brats, and it's not all glitz and glamour. To be honest, it's pretty hard. When I walked into pageantry, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't understand how this could be a life-changing experience. And what I learned is that pageant queens are hard workers. They take respect to another level, and they don't just take leaders as just being leaders. We take it to the extreme. So, to begin with, we take respect on a different level. We understand that all human beings must be respectful. It's just kind of the human thing to do, right? But when you're a pageant queen, once you place the sash on, you are more to everybody else. Everybody expects different things from you. They expect you to understand them faster than any other human being. They don't give you that time to stop and pause. They just expect you to do this. And with that, I learned so much. I was able to actually go into different African communities and learn about their problems and success. And I've actually learned a lot more about my African heritage. I mean, I've been African all my life, and there were some countries that I didn't even know existed in Africa. <laughs> it was so interesting. Besides being respectful, you actually had to be a hard worker. So in total, we went about 55 hours of training from everything from how to sit properly to how to walk. And to be honest, I've been walking for so long, I thought I was great. But once you walk in heels, you realize how bad I actually am. I was actually the worst in my whole group. Um, it was pretty bad. But besides that, 55 hours means a lot of time management. Most of us in pageantry have school, work, and a social life. So adding another 55 hours in the other things that we're doing was incredible, was difficulty at times. And on top of that, it was only for one night. So you never got to see all the things we had to rehearse. You have to be very patient for this, to be honest. Besides hard work, you had to be a leader. You had to understand that you were representing not only your country, but your community. And some of us had platforms that are very touching, from the rise of Islamophobia, which Miss Somalia did, to rape in Zimbabwe, to the black market, um, and the fact that in Ivory Coast, there's a big majority of people who are buying illegal prescriptions and how that is affecting them, to the incarceration, right, incarceration rates that are increasing in the United States. So it was a very broad topic, of, um, range of topics, and to be honest, there were things that I saw in the news. I mean, I knew they existed, but once you actually get to talk to people who've actually experienced this, or know people who've actually been either raped or in the hospital for so long, it's a different level. So besides just being a hard worker, understanding to be respectful of other people, and also being a leader, you realize how important you are to create change. So if you want a team that will not only make you happy and passionate about what you're doing, but will actually just lead you to change, you need to hire a pageant queen. If you want to make any ripple of change, you need to hire a pageant queen. And if you want to make immense change, whether it's in your community or where you live, 
then you need to host a pageant. Not only will you be changing the live, your life, but you'll be changing the lives of other people. And that's the biggest thing you can do to ever create any change. So, if anybody wants to host a pageant, I'll attend, or I'll even come and show. But if you want to create any change, host a pageant. Thank you. One of the fascinating things for people who've attended Ignite multiple times and for us organizers is the infinity of subjects and niches that are fascinating if you can find a person who's passionate about that to tell you about it. So you just heard a talk like that, you're going to hear another one now. And the, the title for it explains itself. Four signs your friend is a birder. Please welcome Jeremy Schwartz to the stage. Hello, my name is Jeremy Schwartz, and I'm a birder. It's, it's taken me nearly a year to be able to say that comfortably in front of people, but I have finally come to terms with this birding life. It's, it's not always been this way, though. Once, I could walk down the street with my wife and not stop mid-sentence, craning my neck to see what bird just flew by or landed in a tree. Once, I would have never thought it even remotely possible to think of standing at the base of a tree, looking up and making a strange sound in hopes of attracting small songbirds. But I'm not really here to talk about me. I'm here to share my love of birds and birding with all of you and share how you too can get out into the world and enjoy these lovely animals. I pitched this talk as four signs your friend or loved one is a birder. But I'd also like to meld it into four simple ways each and every one of you can incorporate a greater appreciation and a greater understanding of birds and the natural world into your daily lives. So, without much further ado, let's get started. Sign number one, look, up in that tree. I know I've developed a tendency of stopping whatever I'm doing while on a walk or even at work looking out my office window to try to see what bird just flew by or landed in a nearby tree. And it's a pretty hard habit to break since birds are pretty much everywhere. I mean, think about it. Well, when's the last time you saw a reptile or a mammal in the wild or in your everyday life? Probably not too recently. But a bird? You probably saw some on the way to the theater this evening. Um, I'm sure there are uh, crows and pigeons stalking the sidewalks outside right now. A report I found said that 20% of the world's 8,000 or so bird species live and breed in cities just like Seattle. So what I'm getting to here is try to cut your friend or loved one some slack if they ever stop mid-sentence while you're walking somewhere to try to see a bird that just flew by or landed in a tree. And definitely don't be afraid to look yourself. You never know what you might see. Sign number two. Gone pishing. That sound, if you can believe it, can be like catnip or birdnip, I guess it would be, to all sorts of small songbirds because they're pretty curious little things and want to see what that weird noise is. It can be especially attractive to birds like this. This is a black-capped chickadee. It's a cute little thing, right? It can be a special kind of thrill to be in a park or a wooded area make this sound near a stand of trees and have all sorts of little songbirds come over to investigate. But it should be done sparingly. 
because any human interaction can stress birds out as it takes them out of their natural routine. So a rule of thumb I have is to stop fishing as soon as a bird comes over to investigate, then just let them get back to their business. Sign three. I know I've had to apologize to more than a few friends for shushing them while on a walk to try to hear a distant bird song better. I've even shushed my wife, if you can believe it, and that really didn't end too well for me. But it can't, uh, being quiet and standing still if in a park or, or a wooded area can have its benefits. For one, um, being quiet can allow birds in the area to get back to their natural routine, especially if they, a big clumsy human just walked by and they had to shut up. Um, my second one is um, keeping, keeping still can make even the smallest bird movement stand out all the more. So don't take it personally if a bird friend ever shushes you. You might just learn something. Finally, sign number four. Actually, it's called uh, we birders mean the best when we stubbornly correct bird names either to your faces or behind your backs. Because when it comes right down to it, we birders are just ridiculously nerdy and downright and just ridiculously excited about these animals and want to tell as many people as we can about them. We revel in the minutiae of bird facts and figures and want to share them with the world. Plus, these little trivia bits are great for winning bar bets with. One of my favorites of these involves this bird right here. Can anyone tell me what it is? If you're whispering or saying out loud, seagull, you are absolutely 100% wrong. There's actually no such thing as a seagull, technically. There are numerous different types of gulls in the world, and this one right here is a glaucus-twing gull, one you're pretty likely to see flying around downtown Seattle or over the waterfront. There. Aren't you just glad I, I straightened that up? I know I am. So, <laughs> I'd like to end here by saying Thank you to all of you for allowing me to devote these last five minutes to birds. And if you only take one thing away from my talk, make it be, let it be this. There's no such thing as a seagull. Thank you. So we try to do what we can with speakers to enhance the experience of being at the event. So we're two talks away from the break, by the way, if you're feeling a little hungry, need another drink, you need to take biological things. In spirit of that talk, uh, he doesn't know this, but the organizers, we found 20 rare birds. We've released them in the lobby so you can practice your birding skills and see how well you do. Speaking of breaks and relaxing, our next talk takes an adventurous and curious view of something that we deal with every day, but don't think about it as much as we should. The title of this talk is Sofas Are Not Scary. Please welcome Rebecca West to the stage. Actually, sofas are scary. They're big, they're expensive, and no matter how many times you measure your living room, you are terrified it's not gonna fit. And I know this because I just got myself a giant navy blue sectional. We don't have a lot of control over the crazy in our world, but we do have control over what's in our homes and in our personal environments. And it can have a huge impact on how we feel, which means the decision to get something like a sofa can actually be a pretty important one. And I learned this back when I had a sofa that was a problem. 
Now, there was technically nothing wrong with it, but I'd gotten it with my ex-husband, and when he moved out, the sofa stayed, which meant I was literally staring at my past, and every time I'd look at that sofa, I was reminded that, yeah, I'd failed at marriage. I couldn't keep living like that, so I sold it on Craigslist, I bought myself a new one for 30 bucks, and with that and some fresh paint, I had took what was our living room and I made it mine. Just like that, I went from being dragged down and depressed by my surroundings to literally waking up to my future. And it wasn't about erasing my past, but it was about closing a door on an old story. When our spaces are working for us, it just makes life a little bit easier because it means there are fewer daily stressors getting in our way. But when our spaces are working against us, it means that we're letting things that we have control over frustrate us and get in our way. And unfortunately, I learned that because I spent a year of my life ticked off when I came home, not because I'd had a bad day, but because my key wouldn't turn in the lock very easily, which meant I spent a year frustrated by something that took me one trip to Home Depot, 20 minutes, and a screwdriver to fix. But even if you know your home isn't working for you, you may not know how to fix it. What you have to do is figure out what you need from your space and learn to articulate it to yourself, your spouse, and if you're working with one, your designer. You have to show me what you need. Don't tell me you want a calm living room and think I'm gonna know what you mean by that. Words like calm or blue or affordable mean different things to different people. And even if you don't think you care what your room looks like, you probably should take some time to figure it out because if you don't, you're gonna end up with what someone else thinks you want or worse, wants you to want, and it might be pretty, but it might not make you real happy when you come home. So whether you just want the bedroom of a grown-up so you're not embarrassed to bring a date back to your place, and that means getting the mattress off the floor, picking out a bed and some nightstands and table lamps, or you want to build a TARDIS in your office like I did, you have to do some homework. Just go online and choose out 10 images of spaces you would love to come home to, and don't worry about if the designs will work in your space. Just pick out the 10 images and then analyze your data. For example, if you were to show me this house idea book, I would see that you're drawn to dark and moody wall colors, brick walls, uh, metal and leather furniture, and that you want a room that's masculine, but not so masculine a girlfriend will come in and immediately change it. These pictures tell me that you want a room that reflects your ambition and your drive and your success, or the success you will have. You want a room that makes you feel cool and calm and collected. On the other hand, if you were to show me this idea book, I would notice that you're drawn to soft, pale colors and gentle curves. And these rooms aren't telling me that you need a white sofa. They're telling me that you need calm and serenity in your life, and your space should support that. But if your living room is currently decorated like this, it is working against the serenity that you need in your space. It, those colors are bold and energetic. That light fixture is like a firework going off in your living room. I'm an interior designer not because I think your home should be on the cover of some design magazine, but because I know that having a happy home fortifies you just as much as meditating or taking a walk in the park. But unlike those things, you wake up to your space every day whether you like it or not. But if you don't do this for a living, you may not feel equipped to choose 10 pictures and analyze them and know instantly why you like or dislike them, and that's okay. Just have some friends over and have them help you analyze them. And if that doesn't work, please email those pictures to me and I will send you a design translation myself. 
because your sofa is more than a sofa. It's a tool in the arsenal of things you have to stay sane in an insane world. And I want you to be able to create your happy space. When you know what you need from your home, choosing a sofa is not as scary. So you have to think past what you're afraid of and think about what it's costing you to have a home that isn't working for you and doesn't make you happy when you're there. Because seriously, life is too short to be stressed out by something like a sofa. Are you cheering out because your mattresses are on the floor? Is that what this is, the mattress on the floor section over here? I would think the balcony people see more like that kind of crowd. That's where I would be too, I think. Yeah, see? All right, good. Okay, don't go to the balcony. It's dangerous up there. I will not be back up there again, just so you know. All right, how you feeling? One more talk to go before the break. Yeah. A lot of people talk about being brave and taking risks and being bold. Talk is a lot easier than actually doing things. This next talk is fascinating and inspiring. And it's a great way for us to lead into the intermission. So please welcome Alicia Crank, who's going to talk about why she never looked the part. Please welcome Alicia to the stage. Have you ever had people look at you when you walk in a room and, and like, you don't belong there? You're not what they were expecting. Whether they say it or they look at you like that, I realized that this was going to be my life pattern starting my senior year in high school. I grew up in Detroit. Any Michigan people here? What up? Well, you know, it's a predominantly black city. Went to a predominantly black school, and I knew that I wanted to experience diversity. So when it was time to apply for colleges, I was a little different. <laughs> my, my guidance counselor, who was a genius in getting us up into these schools, would not help me apply to other schools that were not historically black colleges. And I had to make a decision. Do I do what they wanted me to do, or do I go down the path I wanted? So I ended up going to Central Michigan, becoming a Chippewa. <laughs> then I got on a train and went 2,500 miles to another city called Mountain View in Silicon Valley in California. And I didn't go into tech. I went into corporate banking, which I was not planning on doing. But once I got into that field and it was managing Fortune 500 companies' money, when I told someone I worked at a bank, they were like, oh, you're a teller. I'm like, nope, not a teller. But when I would have to go on these quarterly luncheons with my clients, in the beginning, my boss wouldn't take me. And I couldn't understand why. And he was the first openly gay first vice president in that bank. So when he finally took me, this is what I got. <laughs> this is how my clients looked at me. But then, at the end of the meal, we were fine. It was great. But what my boss wanted to teach me was that I would always, or at least mostly, be looked at differently and judged, and that I could either be intimidated or use it to be empowered. So I chose empowerment. So then I had the nerve as the resident black girl in Mountain View to run for office. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're not going to win. No, this is not your place right here. And they were right. I didn't win, at least not the election. But I did gain respect, and I wasn't really thinking about that. And I got to be an influencer in my community. It's something really cool about having a firefighter sing happy birthday to you at your job. It's really cool. 
And I got to meet Maxine Waters and hang out with her. And Kamala Harris, when she was just the San Francisco Attorney General. And again, being able to influence local leaders, it was great. But then something else happened. I applied for this program called Leadership Mountain View. You might know it here as Leadership Tomorrow. And I wanted to just be an applicant, but they were like, no, we want you to be a director. And I was like, that's cool. I can run a program. But I didn't realize the full breadth of what that meant. So these images up here has nothing to do with the social media, per se. But I had the program leads and VPs of these companies in my class. And I'm teaching them how to be leaders in the community. Again, I'm intimidated, but then I remember what my first boss taught me. Let your reputation precede you. So I let those people talk great about me on LinkedIn. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but then something else happened. The economy. And so right before I left Mountain View, this was my last class, and I got folks from NASA, the community relations person for LinkedIn, all these people that some of you want to get to know, I know them. And so I figured out that I couldn't afford to live in California anymore. And my thing was like, I'm in my 40s now. I got to do this shit all over again. <laughs> I got to start over and let people know who I am and, and get ingrained. So I'm like, OK, let's do this. So yes, I went to Edmonds of all places. <laughs> and I said, not only am I going to run for office again, I'm also going to go into corporate fundraising, two places where people like me don't show up. I didn't win that election again. <laughs> but they stopped calling me the California carpetbagger. And I got to sit on three or four different boards now when I had to quit. But I also got to do great things being this black woman in corporate fundraising. So will I ever look the part? I hope not. Because in all of the things that I had to do and make decisions of, I would have not been able to be where I am today if I wasn't faced with those challenges. So the moral of the story is to turn your obstacles into opportunities, initially for yourself because you have to, but now I hope that my experience helps others to be able to make those same decisions. Thank you. So you're in for a special treat. We've been doing this a long time. There's certain people who have been multiple time fantastic speakers for us. This next speaker was not only a fantastic speaker, she was an organizer, she was an MC. So we're really pleased and honored that she's gonna share the stage with us again. Talking about how to make Seattle your own is the Evergrays Monica Guzman. Please welcome her to the stage. Hey everyone, I'm about to tell you something awesome. You live in Seattle. This is a beautiful, brilliant city, and whether you've been here a week or your whole life, I'm gonna give you 10 ways you can make the most of it. Now first, just get out there and look around. This is the most viral photo ever taken of our city, taken from an airplane window coming into SeaTac. The mountains, the water, the air. What better canvas to build the life you want? But zoom closer and it gets complicated. We are the fastest growing city in the country, with the hottest housing market. We're the fourth wealthiest city. And we have the third largest homeless population. Now basically the story of Seattle, it's right now about growth and wealth and belonging. More than a thousand people move to our region every week. 
about 40% of the houses in our market are listed for more than a million dollars. And while 65% of newcomers think that the city's headed in a good direction, only 43% of long-timers agree. So there's the stats. Now some people you should know. Nathan Vass uh, drives the Route 7 Metro bus and writes amazing stories about it. Ijoma Oluo, a badass feminist critic and writer. Gene Bogg, who's here tonight, is with the Seattle Times. He's the data guy. Every story he writes helps you understand your city. Nikita Oliver ran for mayor, changed the way this city talks about race and equity. Cynthia Brothers, also here, here tonight, runs the Vanishing Seattle Instagram account. And Eric Liu with Citizen University. Now, the quirks in Seattle. Yes, we have more dogs than children. Yes, every Lyft and Uber at SeaTac Airport is a Prius. And yes, the new bathroom signs at Pike Place Market look like someone's stealing a baby. Now, you should know what will get you disapproval in this city. If you do not have a compost bin in your home, you might get the side eye. If you jaywalk here, you might get the side eye. And if you take a big umbrella to the drizzle on a sidewalk, you will probably get more than the side eye. Also, say it right, it's Pike Place Market, not Pike's Place. We live on Puget Sound, not the Puget Sound. And the Washington State Fair is in Puyallup, not Puyallup. Now, by far the best thing you can do to keep connected to the city is hang out with other humans. Maybe you've heard of the Seattle Freeze. Pretend you have not. Maybe you don't have time to look up events going on around you. Well, guess what? I'm just about to give you in the next 75 seconds things that happen on a regular basis that you should know about. There is a pun competition in Ballard every month. You can go sign up or just watch. The worst movie in the world screens every month at Central Cinema in Columbia City and usually sells out. If you're feeling shy, take your book to the stranger's silent reading party at the beautiful Sorrento Hotel. You don't have to say anything. If you want to gamble, Greenwood's, Greenwood Senior Center's bingo nights are absolutely legendary. So check them out. If you're an early bird, go to Gasworks Park at 6.30 in the morning on any Wednesday. You will find a group of people working out and you can join them. The Washington Trails Association's Trailblazer app will tell you where you can go nearest to you on a hike at any time. Maybe you've heard of the first Thursday art walks in Pioneer Square, but do you know that second Thursday is Capitol Hill in West Seattle? Do you know that third Thursday is Queen Anne Uptown and there's so many more? Fresh Ground Stories monthly storytelling event at the Roy Street Coffee and Tea in Capitol Hill. And the movements and protests and causes in Seattle is so on fire about this right now. The place to go to find out what's going on in that world is Fight the Good Fight. Google it, Molly Nixon who started it is also here tonight. Find her, she is awesome. Now the weather. One in eight longtime Seattleites thinks the weather is the best part about this city. <laughs> One in 20 newcomers does. The secret for rain in this city is just embrace your indoor spaces. That's why we have coffee shops. Make your living room your sanctuary. And finally, votey vote vote. We are about to elect our first female mayor in 89 years. Um, Know about Carrie Moon, know about Jenny Durkin. The too long didn't read of all of this is, this is your city. Walk around like you own it, because you do. Doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. You can build an awesome life here, make relationships that add meaning to your life. You can do it. I'll leave you with a hack. A great classic way to remember the order of streets downtown going from south to north is Jesus Christ made Seattle under protest. But. As Veronica Santiago uh, told us, going north to south, it's pick up some more cheese, Jimmy.
Every name you saw in this presentation is a contributor, subscriber to the Evergrey. The Evergrey is a newsletter that I created, I helped create a year ago, and all it does is help keep you connected to your city. I hope you'll go to theevergrey.com, sign up. We'll see you in your inbox. Thank you. So we're always interested in meta talks or talks that are riffs on other talks. So an easy submission, go do all the things that Monica told you to do and submit a talk, what I learned by doing all the things that I learned from Monica's talk. See, it's an easy game to play. You could be up here at Ignite 35, who knows? Now, in the first half, we talked about Dead 2.0, which is a very literal talk about what happens to us and how we should think about when we're done, what happens to our, our substance. Now we have a different talk about death. You're gonna come in from a very different perspective, thinking about how the themes about death impact an artist's career. So please welcome to the stage Patrick Blanchard, who's gonna talk about sleeping with specters. Welcome to the stage, please. Thank you. Good evening. I am here to share with you a spooky story, an immersive theater experience that involves 86 dead people, two living ones, and you, wherever you fall on that spectrum. <laughs> so first, a little bit about me. My name is Pat, and I'm an experiential and installation artist. Sometimes the spaces that I choose to work in are more public, like the one on the left is a construction site. Sometimes they're a little bit more private, like the one on the right, where I set something on fire in my boss's studio while he was out of town. Um, but in May, I got a call from a few friends, Aaron and Austin Keeling and Natalie Jones, and they told me about this theater play that they had written that was to be performed in their literal apartment, one of the most intimate spaces available. So, um, of course, I wanted to move in and help out, so I moved on down with them, and we got started right away. So one of the first things that we did was create a series of Instagram images to help tell the story and launch it. And so it follows the career of a paranormal investigation within this house. And from their very beginning journeys all through their untimely demise, and eventually we sold 160 tickets in two days, which was great, um, asking for volunteers to come inside the house and investigate the space for themselves. So. When people showed up to this house, they were given the address only 24 hours before, they met Michelle here, the current owner, who unlocked all the doors and led them up the small little staircase into this room, where you see all the art that was created in that Instagram story before. And it talks about the research and, and the um, sort of experiences that were described by the 86 people that had supposedly died in this space, all collected by this woman who uh, was the investigator that we met in the account, Wendy Morrow. And she hands people files uh, during the entire experience, and so you flip through some of her research and get to see things as she experienced them. And so after you go in the room with her, you shift to a 1920s-style dining room where you take a seat at the table with a husband and wife, and it quickly becomes clear that the husband is a little bit off, and you soon learn two people of your three, uh, of your group of three, excuse me, uh, follow the wife, Anne, into a secret little nook with strings hanging from the ceiling and keys dripping from the walls. And she takes one of those keys and unlocks a trunk that's hidden away behind a corner. And you learn that she 
killed her husband, and that's why he's acting so weird, which I guess is a good reason. But um, <laughs> after she explains that, she hands one of the key to one of the audience members and says, take this, take my secret. And so you take that with you, because I don't know what else you would tell her. But um, at the same time that scene is happening, there's that third audience member who's escorted into that glowing purple closet where her husband went to catch a breather. And they have this one-on-one -on -one experience where he delivers this monologue about how much he loves his wife and how the only thing he wants is to make her happy, but he can't remember quite how because he's dead and doesn't quite know it. But um, I think this was maybe one of the rooms that was the most fun to work on um, because it's a shrine dedicated to unrequited love, which is something I like to do in my spare time. Um, <laughs> and I spent a lot of time in the closet, so this is like home. Um, but yeah, so after that scene wraps up, you travel through that office again into this room uh, where a lot of the objects that we used to decorate came from estate sales, so like literal dead people, which is some kind of weird energy, I'm sure. Um, but it's really a good reminder that, you know, all the stuff that you cherish in this life will be sold like half price on Sunday, so <laughs> keep that in mind. But you sit on the bed and you communicate with the spirits that are in the room by moving a Ouija board as they come literally up to the bed and whisper in your ear and tell you how to move it around. Um, after that, you move to this room where you see a heartbroken writer and a lovesick couple who both perish in, or I'm sorry, all three of them perish in the same fire, but it happens hundreds of years apart, but you see it happen at the same time. And there are too many details, I think, from the show to really share in these uh, five minutes, but um, it changed my life because it changed the way that I think about art and entertainment and the power that shifting the audience from an observer to someone who participates and injects themselves into the story. That's a super powerful thing. Um, and to wrap up, this is the room that I slept in every night. Um, it's surrounded by photos of the 86 dead people and their families, so uh, that's super fun to wake up to every morning. Um, but if you want to see more, uh, you can check out my site. I have photos on there. It's p-b.sucks. Um, that's a thing now. <laughs> the internet is cool, so like know.com. Um, but yeah, you should check it out. It's uh, super fun, so thank you. <laughs> this is a talk that you will really enjoy, I think. I'm not going to say too much about it. The title explains itself. The title of the talk is The Minority Majority. Please welcome Eugene Sue to the stage. Thank you. Hey guys, so we're pretty lucky to be in Seattle because when you say Asia, people realize it's more than one country. And when you say Asian, it's not just about food. So we're actually pretty strong in the tech space and we're in Seattle, which is a growing community right now. So my day job, I'm a product manager in a small <coughs> local company here. Uh, <coughs> And I'm actually the president of the Asians organization, which is 5,000 members strong now. It's kind of crazy. It's like we're the biggest diversity organization in the whole company right now. Um, if you take a look at it, we're really fortunate because most companies now are supporting more than just the government numbers. Not just ethnicity and sex, but more so, more so other things. But so the US government is in fact tracking EEO numbers. So they're kind of actually, you can see basically that, yes, Asians are a minority. We are 6% of the population. 
Um, blacks and Hispanics are about 15. So really quickly here, if you look at the professionals, the 41, the orange, that's Asians. So we may skew more towards the professional ranks, and you may see us as tech workers, you may see us all over the place. But the problem here is you look at the first level middle managers and the executive managers, and you see basically this drop well. For Asian women in orange, it's a fight for them to get up and get into those ranks. Um, it's a very difficult numbers, but it's kind of what's going on. So where are you from? You get this question all the time. I usually say, well, before Seattle, I came from Austin, Texas. It's not usually the thing that they want to hear, but people are moving to Seattle all the time now from around the world. All sorts of different cultures and different places, and people are just trying to understand where they fit in in the culture. Um, who can you work with? Who can you associate with and be a part of? Um, that's the type of community action that people are trying to do, and companies are trying to support that. So. This is where I'm going to break a little bit. Basically, employer resource groups are those organizations which can help. Right? Um, but one of the things that I want to talk about is why I'm so passionate about this. And my passion comes from the fact that I watched as my mom, excuse the photos, there'll be lots of food photos too. Um, basically, my parents came as first generation immigrants and my mom was one of the first MBA graduates. Um, she was the only woman in her entire class and she built her entire career in corporate America without the support of actually having strong Asian or minority women leaders um, in, in the world, um, in the companies that she worked with. If you look now, um, right now in 2017, we're at the point where you have the ability to hire anyone you want. And there's only two women who are minorities who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. You only have four African-American CEOs within the, Afri within the Fortune 500. If you looked at the numbers, it should be 15%. So the question is kind of, what can you guys do about it? So you may or may not be part of a minority organization. You may or not, not necessarily know um, what you want to do, but I would suggest that you actually take a look at the organizations that exist out there today um, look in your own company for other minority organizations and try to join because kind of the best thing that you can do is you can join up in the activities, you can learn about the struggles, you can learn about what you can do to participate, and you can be an ally. Because as minorities, we are <laughs> smaller in number, um, and everyone here can learn and participate and be a part of it. So thank you very much. One of the fascinating things about our species is that we, we make stuff. Like part of the entertainment value of the internet is like people just keep making stuff and making stuff. We never run out of kitten videos to make. We never run, a, we never run out of new ways to send a message. We can text message, email, Slack message. Somehow we're always making more and more stuff. Our next talk is an inquiry into why that is. Why we humans keep making things. Please welcome Jeremy Bowen to the stage. Hello, hello, hello. I'm going to stand on the red carpet. My name is Jeremy Bowen. I'm going to talk about doorstops and bicycles, why we humans keep making things. I am a designer. I work at Microsoft. I know. Uh, and we spend a lot of time thinking about how to make things better and how to just make better things for all of you. We spend a lot of time thinking about the future. What is it going to look like? What do we want it to look like? What, what, 
could it possibly be? Uh, and and spending all this time thinking about the future, I started to ask some deeper questions about like, hold up, why do we do technology in the first place? Like, why haven't we stopped? Like, we're good. We made a lot of cool stuff. Let's, let's sit back and enjoy that. Now, you may give me some easy answers to that of like, oh, you know, it's because we want things to be uh, simpler or we want life to be easier. Um, and I think that's a really unsatisfactory answer. Uh, it, it doesn't strike at the why. Why do we want things to be easier and why do we want things to be simpler? Uh, in order to answer this question, let's take a look at, at what we do with technology. And I think there's two symbols that I use for this. The first is the, is the doorstop, and this is about delegation. I am perfectly capable of holding this door open for this gentleman bringing the box in, but I'd rather not. That chunk of wood is much less important than I am. Why doesn't the chunk of wood do it, right? Uh, and so the, the doorstop is about delegation. We do this with our technology all the time. We offload the things we'd rather not be doing to the technology. It can do it for us. The second model that I like to use is the bicycle. In order to get from point A to point B, I could maybe do that, but you know, I'd get all sweaty and it might take really a long time, I might miss the party, right? That's, that's really hard. But if we introduce some technology to, uh, to augment my capabilities, such as the bicycle, I am now able to do something I was not able to do before, which is to go super fast with a much less effort. And a lot of technology about, is about this, of extending our capabilities to, to influence the world around us and to connect to the world around us and to make more interesting decisions. But still, to what end? What are we after? Um, the last thought I had was maybe, uh, maybe it's some deep-rooted uh, survival mechanism. Maybe we're just trying to avoid death in some way, and so we make stuff that like uh, avoids death. But of course, technology does help us keep alive better. That's probably true, but it's a stretch for a lot of stuff that we make, to say the least. Uh, so here's what I really think, and I'm going to get a little Carl Sagan on you guys. This is a point in a void. The only meaning the point has is that it is, as opposed to is not. There's nothing to relate to. But if you give the point a bunch of buddies, a bunch of friends, things to relate to and, and, and have relationships with, it now has meaning. And the more things that this point can relate to in more ways, the more meaning it has uh, in this universe. Now, if you give this point the ability to move and to shift itself, it now has the sensation of power. Uh, it, can, it can change its relationships to the world, and that is a sense of, uh, of significance and meaning as well. Now take away all of those buddies it has and all of the power that it has, it suddenly becomes, it loses its meaning, it loses its, its, its sense of significance. It becomes Sandra Bullock in the movie Gravity floating away. <laughs> oh no! What am I going to do? You know, like it's, that's terrifying because it, she's completely powerless to do anything in the universe and we all fear that probably the most. It is this web of connections and meaning in the world between people, between things, between ideas. This is what gives us a sense of meaning in the world in an otherwise uh, cold and apathetic universe. Um, and so this is where we derive our meaning. So back to this question, what do we want from our technology? Uh, and I think it really stems from this. Uh, what, what really drives our desire to innovate and to improve boils down to something I like to call, drum roll please, better power. Okay, stop. Uh, we're very sensitive to the sensation that we're wasting our time or wasting our efforts or, or that our decisions are, are, uh, are 
not impactful or meaningless or insignificant. Um, now, power is a scary word. It's a very masculine word. I want to address that right now. I'm not talking about more power in the kind of the evil, uh, oppressive sense. I'm talking more about the ability to influence the world and the ability to connect to the, the world around us. Now, um, because I think as we refine that capability at, through our technology in a lot of ways, but also outside of that, that gives us a sense of significance in the world. And the greater sense of significance we have in the world, the greater sense, uh, the possibility for happiness and emotional well-being. Now, I love to play the piano, but uh, if you look at this from a different angle, that's ridiculous. If I want music, there are easy ways to get music. Uh, but for me, the ability to make music happen with my own hands, to me, is better power. And that's what all of uh, technology is really about. Thank you very much. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, so we're on the home stretch now. And my job as MC is to set us up for the home stretch. Everybody stand up. Use your legs, stand up. Feel your body again. Stretch up high, feel good. Look to the person to your left, say hello. If you don't like them and they're ugly, look, look to the person to your right, say hi to them. Very good. And now sit down and shut up. I do sound like your mom. I might be your mom. That's a subject for another talk. So, I have two, two diversionary tactics as MC I'm going to use now. So the first is to share with you the winner of a prize. So we're always trying to experiment, as I mentioned, new ways to make the event work, new ways to bring people to the event. So Nicole and Heidi work on marketing for us. Round of applause for Nicole and Heidi, please, on our organizing squad, okay? So Nicole put together a poetry competition for a free ticket. And we had many stellar submissions, but one winner. Would you like to hear the poem? So Leslie, where are you? Please come upstage here. She's very close. Round of applause for Leslie. Keep applauding until she actually gets here, because I have nothing to do until, until she does. I, ha I have your poem for you. So you want me to hold the microphone, or are you, you got it? I have an idea. It starts a small spark in one mind. That spark may journey to be controlled by a Bunsen burner or magnified like a careless firecracker turned wildfire burning uncontrollably. Just as a fire in a hearth can warm bodies and souls, so too a fire can turn the surrounding household to ashes and rubble. Just as a wildfire can be devastating, so too a wildfire can rebuild a countryside and new life will emerge from the embers. You have an idea? What will it ignite? Thank you. Oh, I need that back, that's important. I hope so far you felt our ideas are not of the devastating kind, but as I said before, it's open to interpretation for you. I have one other MC task to take care of tonight. So I mentioned that Monica is a longtime alumni and friend of Ignite. We have another friend of Ignite here who has a special day. Adam Phillips, are you here? Adam Phillips, stand up, please. Adam Phillips has spoken at many events. He comes to many events as an audience member. It is his birthday. Hold on. How many of you, before we talk about the birthday, how many of you are here on a date night? 
If you're here on a date night, stand up. Stand up. I promise I will not embarrass you. <laughs> I hope you believe me at this point. I am sincere. I won't embarrass you. If it's your birthday, stand up. Your birthday. I, if you're having a terrible day, pretend it's your birthday. Anyone having a terrible day today so far? Pretend it's your birthday. Stand up. Okay. So what we're going to do to honor the birth, honor Adam, the birthday folks, and date night folks, we're going to sing a modification of happy birthday. We're going to sing... Happy birthday and or date night to you, okay? So it goes like this. Happy birthday and or date night to you. You get it? All right, on the count of three, okay? <laughs> I hope you're with me on this. One, two, three. Happy birthday and or date night to you. Happy birthday and or date night to you. Happy Good job. Thank you. Okay. Can you all sit down now? Very good. Very good. You people are crazy. I love you all. All right. We're on the home stretch now. Three more talks, and they're really good. So you're going to be, so, oh, it's going to be so good. All right. So next up, we talked about the proximity principle, which was a positive way to think about people you meet and deal with. This is going to take a different view on people that I think you are going to love. How to stay calm around impossibly annoying people. Please welcome Susan Fee to the stage. I can tell it. You know someone. You know someone who drives you crazy, don't you? And I know you know someone because I'm a therapist, so I've listened to you complain about them for a long time. Now, the relationship is insignificant. It's not that Part of a fix, you're just going to ignore them, not talk to them, you're good. But what do you do when this person is embedded in your life? They're not going anywhere because they're in your family. They're sitting next to you. It's your co-work, it's your neighbor. You need to coexist, and that's called respectful disengagement. Respectful is how you communicate. Disengage means how you're going to unhook from them emotionally so you won't be so annoyed by their annoying habits. Now, luckily, typical people, super consistent. The evidence is all there. The problem is you don't believe it. You don't believe it, so you stay hooked, right? You don't believe what they're showing you, and you know that you're still engaged because you say, I can't believe it. I can't believe they're doing this. I can't. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Well, maybe they're going to change. Today, they're going to get it. No, they're not. <laughs> no. So step number one in respectful disengagement, when people show you who they are, believe them and adjust your expectations to a more realistic view. Step number two, if you do believe them, stop trying to change them. I am not suggesting that you should ever tolerate abuse or inappropriate behavior, but I am saying your response should not be rooted in showing your disapproval and all your pain and disappointment and fixing their mess. No, 100% of your response can now be to respond to what is and not what you wanted them to be. Step number three. Stop trying to complain about these people all the time. 
right? Just think about it. That means you have to agree to stay angry all the time and spend your energy coming up with evidence about how you're so right and they're so wrong, but we already established that, so you're done with that now. Step number four, stop trying to get a difficult person to understand your pain. Because get this, your wounder will never be your healer, right? And if you actually get them to apologize, it's never satisfying on the deepest level because you were never meant to get your affirmation from that place. You do not need permission to feel how you feel. It's true for you. Now, some of you, because I can tell by your faces, you're thinking, well, this isn't going to work. Because I've been thinking about my difficult person, which means you're totally engaged with them. Uh, and it's not going to work. I mean, this is for different people. And, and I get that. I get the skepticism. I do. But I want to offer some encouragement because you do practice this in other areas of your life. It will make sense. So let me give you an example. Let's say that you walk out on the street and you come across a dog urinating in public on a tree. How rude is that? Are you going to get mad? Probably not. Are you going to give them the dog your, your leg to pee on? Probably not. If the dog, who looks like a dog, behaves like a dog, does not look or behave like a cat, will you be highly disappointed? Probably not. So if you're not going to get mad at a dog for doing what dogs do, why are you going to get mad at a jerk for doing what jerks do? Ah, you're catching on. Respectful disengagement. When people show you who they are, believe them. Stop trying to change them. Stop complaining and stop trying to get this person to understand your pain. Now, I totally get that changing relational patterns it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for my clients. I just want to give you a little jump start. Maybe we could do it together. If you sang that last song, you can do this, all right? So the first thing you do, you come across your difficult person. Do this with me. Just, just breathe. Okay, not going to. I'm going to stay calm, all right? Secondly, in your head, but we'll say it out loud. You say, dogs will be dogs. Say it now. Dogs will be dogs. Good. Step three, just do this. Woof. And keep on walking. Let me hear it, Seattle. Woof. You got it. I'm Susan Fee. Thank you very much. I was born and raised in Queens, New York City. A great city. Uh, Queens, all right. Fantastic. A city with great food, but not great barbecue. And then after college, I moved to Seattle in 1994. Great city, not a great city for barbecue. Our next speaker has changed that. Jack from Jack's Barbecue is giving the next talk. He's gonna tell his story of going from tech to Texas. Please welcome him to the stage. Thank you, Scott. Hello, everybody. Howdy, y'all. Um, my midlife crisis started years ago when I went on a three-week vacation to Spain. I uh, grew up as a kid working every summer, every holiday. I worked all the way through high school and college. I'd never had more than a week off for vacation, and three weeks kind of broke me. I was in uh, Spain, a week in Barcelona, a week fly fishing in a little village, 
and a week on a ranch overlooking Africa, this thousand acre ranch with this guy who owned it, who had cork trees, he had pigs that only ate fallen acorns that made the best prosciutto in all of Spain. And every night we'd smoke Cuban cigars and talk. And I thought, oh my God, I want to be a gentleman farmer when I grow up. And I went back to my office at Microsoft <clears throat> and, and stared at my screen for six months. And I was just, I was afraid. I thought, oh my God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at a computer screen and go to meetings where people argue about an adjective on a PowerPoint slide for 40 minutes <laughs> for, the, for the rest of my life, right? And so I started fantasizing about, well, I didn't fantasize. I looked into like buying an organic coffee uh, farm in Costa Rica or opening up a restaurant or a bar or something in uh, the Dominican Republic. And I started checking in to all these things. And but my daughter had just gotten to a, a, a cute little private school here in Seattle, and, and the anchor of life went down really hard. So I, I couldn't do anything. Um, luckily... My, my wife was a writer and a filmmaker, and she made a movie about burlesque called The Wink and a Smile that, that actually premiered in this theater. We sold out two shows in SIF. It did really well. Um, so I quit Microsoft and moved to L.A. and became a movie producer. They had a 10-week a program in becoming a movie producer that I discovered. And I thought, what the hell? So I went there and actually got a, a deal for the film. It opened in theaters in New York and L.A. and... Um, Little theaters, you know, Northwest Film Forum kind of places. Uh, didn't make any money. Spent a lot of money. Spent a lot of money. Uh, came back to uh, Microsoft as a consultant in places like that. Uh, and then I discovered Barbecue Summer Camp. And uh, I went to Barbecue Summer Camp in the Meat Sciences Department of Texas A&M. Why wouldn't you? And I toured all the super famous barbecue joints in Texas. And I'm from Texas, right, in my accent. Uh, I, wear, I get to wear shirts like this now, by the way, when you own a barbecue joint. And uh, I came back and I, I, uh, I thought I could open a restaurant. And I thought, because I'd done a bunch of barbecue events, it would be easy. It, it wasn't easy. <laughs> it, was, um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I, I tell people I age like a president. <laughs> I, I'm like Obama eight years later, you know, after, after two years owning the restaurant. It was, it was crazy. Uh, we had, you know, employees, like chefs, like would throw temper tantrums like you see on TV and like grab other employees and choke them because we put chicken wings on the menu accidentally or something like that. We had people in my office crying all the time. Um, we had customers that would come in and steal things or, or give us a bad uh, Yelp review because, you know, there was Nashville music playing instead of Texas music on our soundtrack. And we call ourselves a Texas restaurant. We have a homeless woman, I, I, I hope she's homeless, because she comes into the bathroom and destroys it like once a month. And we can't catch her, she always does it when it's busy. Um, we've had a, lots of people crawl over our fence at night. We had to put razor wire up, we've got cameras everywhere. Um, I, I'd lay in bed at night it, with just total anxiety attacks about you know, who to fire next and stuff like that. It, it, it was a nightmare, and then, um, and then it wasn't. All of a sudden, it kind of calmed down. Uh, the, the employees kind of calmed down. The building stopped exploding. Uh, Ethan Stoll, who's a local restaurant guy, told me, he says, yeah, you get thick skin after a couple of years, don't you? I said, yeah, you kind of do. I mean, the second time the cops pulled one of my employees out of the kitchen and arrested him for breaking parole, I was like, okay, uh, Johnny won't be in on Monday, y'all. You know, I got... I, 
I got used to it. You get used to it. And, um, you know, I, 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 I got out of my comfort zone, and it was scary, but I, I got over it, and it was really cool. And uh, I sleep like a baby now, you know? And, and, and the only thing I worry about is what I worried about when all this kind of started. It's like, am I making the most of my life? Am I going for it? So that's my encouragement to all of you is just, just go for it. Thank you very much. Great job. Great job. That's good stuff. Hopefully none of you are going to be arrested before the show is over for violating your parole, which is good news. We're ending soon. We have one more talk to go, just one more. And it's going to be really good. One problem of our technological advancing world, as a previous talk talked about, why do we keep making new stuff, is we take words that have deeper meaning, that have powerful metaphoric meaning, and we trivialize them. And one of those words is disruption. We throw that word around all the time, and it doesn't mean anything anymore. This next talk is going to give you a strong dose of metaphorical brilliance to send you out into the world and ask questions about who you are, how you fit into things, and how you want the world to be. So the next talk's title is Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and the World. Please welcome Shepard Siegel to the stage. Thank you. Listen, the future of our world depends upon you having as much fun as you possibly can. Yeah. And by having fun, I mean being playful, and I mean playing. I don't mean playing games where you keep score and you have winners and losers. In fact, for me, competition and consumerism and consumption and commerce are the opposite of play. In fact, when you escalate it, we've seen what the escalation of competition brings. It brings us war. But we've never found out what the escalation of the non-competitive play that we're all born with an innate ability to do. We've never seen what the escalation of that does. In fact, all animals are playful, and we share that with them when we're infants. But as we grow older, we become enthralled with competition, and we forget how to be playful. But the fact is, we still all have that in us, and that's what fascinates me. What would happen if we escalated that? Now, some people are gifted, and they are born with the gift to remain playful throughout their entire lives. And we need to be grateful for them and to appreciate this gift, because I can't think of any greater gift to give our fellow humans than the gift of being playful throughout our adult lives. These are special folks. But other people cultivate this ability to be playful and take it into their adult lives very deliberately. And when they do it and they get on the stage that is based on competition, it's disruptive. But these folks who retain this ability to be playful into their adult lives will inevitably encounter the oldest archetype known to humanity, and that is the archetype of the trickster. The trickster appears in every culture on the planet. The trickster in most cultures is worshipped as a god. But the trickster plays tricks and gets tricks played on him or her because tricksters are also gender benders. And uh, so, so there they are. You've got, you've got tricksters doing this stuff and you've got the speaker forgetting what he was going to say next. It all happens. <laughs> 
Here in the Northwest, we have the raven as the trickster god. From West Africa, we have Eshuelegba, who greatly influenced African-American culture and therefore all culture. But then you've got Loki. Now, Loki's interesting because the pre-Christian Loki was a classic trickster. But as Europe needed to build empire, they could not have an amoral trickster god running around. Tricksters are neither good nor evil. But out of the amoral waters in which they swim, values emerge. But Western society needed to misunderstand the trickster and paint the trickster as a villain, as the devil, as evil, or turn the trickster uh, strip the trickster of his power and make the trickster the court jester or the fool. But then I wondered, well, how could that be then that the great American trickster of the 20th century, the quintessential trickster, this guy, yeah, gets, gets away with it all the time. And I'm going to tell you why Bugs Bunny gets away with being a classic trickster, even though the trickster was bound. The reason is World War I. Because World War I was so stupid and so bloody that the greatest artists of Europe reflected the absurdity of World War I back on them and created the art movement of Dada. And Dada said, you think we're absurd? Well, look what you're doing on the Western Front. And we need to remember that Dada was as much an anti-war movement as an art movement. And the tricksters are anti-war because war is the least fun thing you can do. Right. Now, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And two generations later, we had another bloody and stupid war, this time in Vietnam. And once again, we had a cultural response, a cultural response of the hippie and the counterculture that metaphorically and figuratively put flowers in guns and gun barrels and said, we're not going to engage conflict with more conflict. We're going to be disruptively playful in the face of conflict. So my message for you tonight is to find, which I'm trying to find, your inner bugs. <laughs> Disruptively play and commit the sin of sin against an awkward power structure. Refuse to take it seriously. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Ignite Seattle 34 took place on October 19th at the Egyptian Theater. The MC was Scott Birkin. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>